Uh, welcome to this week's edition of the Rock and Roll Ghost Podcast. This week we have singer, songwriter, guitarist uh, Glenn Phillips. Uh, you may know him from his solo career or from his days uh, still in Toad the Wet Sprocket, the uh, alternative uh, hit makers from the 90s. Uh, Glenn, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? Thank you. Doing okay. Thanks. Good. Um, so you, you had an out uh, solo album come out semi-recently and you were touring behind it but now you guys in tote are are gearing up to go on tour um you know how how is it to switch gears like that from you know doing your thing to doing the band thing uh i i mean it's normal at this point i've been doing <laughs> the solo thing for 20 years and toad tours pretty much every year i tour every year so uh it's just you know, season shift and do something different. Uh, I like the change between the two. I think going out and doing my own stuff helps me really appreciate Toad and uh, getting together with Toad gets me ready to go out and do my own thing again. So <laughs> I like I like the change. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you think about it back in back in uh, the day, like you know, Toad was around, like the idea of doing a solo album for the most part was meant you're the band was over, you know, I mean, like Sting and you know people mm -hmm. like that. Um, but now people realize you could kind of, you know, you got do all sorts of things a lot. It, it's one thing about modern music, modern music field that's kind of freeing in one way is that bands have learned number one how to communicate with each other to some degree. Uh, well, they just they, decided to never learn and let it be <laughs> right uh, uh but th that that's there now you know which never was before you know so a lot of bands and i'm not saying this is what happened with toad but just you know a lot of bands just couldn't deal with each other anymore and they saw no lots they just blew up the whole thing but also this idea that you can you can keep the band going and still everybody can do side projects and yeah. it's a lot freer now now the downside is that there's a lot less money, you know, in it for everyone. That's that's true. Uh, yeah, I wish we had done side projects for a while instead of breaking up back in the day. I think we could have done well with a moderator, you know, a mediator and uh, a break. But uh, we we did it the other way for good or for <laughs> ill. Um, but yeah, I, I also think just the idea of collaboration I think it's really healthy for people in a band to do things outside the band because you you can uh, start to see your internal uh, uh, culture as you know the way things work, and then you walk into a different group of people and you realize you can do things a different way right. or contribute in a different way. You can be recognized for creative contributions that you weren't recognized for in the band and you can also find out where you've gone complacent in a band and where you need to build skill and uh you know whether that's instrumentally musically or or interpersonally yeah. um there's a ton to be learned by working with other people i think it's uh it's yeah it, it's, I think it's a pretty vital thing, actually, to keep a band healthy, especially these days. Yeah, no, I I, I hear you. You know, it's just it's amazing the the differences. You think about all these these bands that broke up because they couldn't stand each other anymore, and like you know, so oftentimes you just need some damn time away from each other. <laughs> well, yeah, or you play with other people, and you you you're, you you have a new slate, and you're able to play with somebody else, and sometimes you go like, wow. 
this guy's amazing. And they're a little crazy. Like, I don't, I'm glad I'm not in a band forever with it. Like it doesn't happen much, but you know, it, it, it can really help you realize everyone's different. Everyone's chewing on their own stuff. Everyone's trying to learn. And, uh, it can also show you that things you've become acclimated to in terms of how people relate are ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, just that it's like, there's this argument we always get into. There's no argument that we're not even disagreeing on anything. It's just a habit, you know, yeah. and it can help you step outside of it. I get you. I get you. What, what for you has been the biggest change? I mean, you signed to Columbia pretty early on. You started the band around what, 15? And then you signed around 17, 18 to Columbia? Yeah, we signed when I was 18. Um, I mean, it's hard to say what's the biggest, probably the biggest change in my life is uh, that my kids are all in their 20s and out, you know, and spread around. And uh, I got divorced 10 years ago. I'm going to be getting married again this year. Uh, so huge life changes. Yeah. And even when you're talking about side projects, it's like I had three kids back in the day. I was, uh, you know, so even the idea of side projects, I would get home and I would just be Mr. Dad. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, yeah. didn't want to do a side project. I wanted to be with my kids. Right. So, uh, now there's, there's a lot more free free time. I think the hardest adjustment of my life, honestly, uh, is coming home and not having my children, uh, yeah. because it was, it, there's something about like being in the studio or being on the road, you know, what you have to do every day. And I, I can tell the story that I'm not a very disciplined person, mm -hmm. but on the road, I've never missed a show in 35 years. I, you know, and I have sung through great illness, you know, when you're on the road, you got to wake up, you got to do the drive, you got to get in, you got to sound check, you got to get something to eat eventually, play the show, settle the show, sell them, you know, it's like, go to sleep and do it again the next day. It's, it's, it's kind of grueling. And then these days I get home and it's like, I don't know what to do with myself. I used to have these, you know, I started being a father when I was 25. So I would get home and it's like, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk, go for a walk with the kid. I'm going to let my wife sleep in. I'm going to make a breakfast. I'm going to take the kid. You know, it's like, yeah. there's all this kids just fill your life. And now I come home and it's like, what do I got to do today? Oh, I'm, I should write the best song I've ever written. That's what I should do today. <laughs> I'll just procrastinate a little on that. I'll, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing is, it's like, even when, you know, even when you're not on, even when you're not, uh, whatever, touring or whatever, you still technically have a job. I mean, granted, the the hours are a little bit more lax because you're in charge, but <laughs> yeah. So I end up doing you know different things. I do community choir leading when I'm at home. I uh, started doing a ton of live casts during lockdown. I was doing like five live casts a week basically i was doing a, a zoom choir three free live casts on social media and then a stage at concert uh for about 18 months straight and yeah. so i learned more songs and played more guitar than i ever have in my life during that yeah. time uh but it's uh yeah it, it, being a creative is interesting and and there's also simply um 
I think one of the necessities, I've been thinking a lot more about it. You know, we have this Rilke quote on our wall here that it's something like the, the, um, like the highest requirement of relationship is to guard one another's solitude. It's a quote from Rilke and that, you know, creativity comes out of silence. It doesn't come out of, you know, you know, once again, I'm a podcast addict. I have this attention grabbing device in my yeah, pocket yeah. all the time. And, uh, and I suck in a lot of, you know, too much information and creativity comes out of, out of silence. Creativity comes out of time when it's just my, my thoughts get to go somewhere. I, I, but I've always been like feast or famine. I take in a lot. I get a set of concepts that I want to address. And then I have a, a writing season where it all kind of gets digested and the ideas attach themselves to songs. So, yeah, I gotta say this as somebody that, that writes myself, uh, I, the, the worst thing for me is that I don't sit there and quiet my, you know, myself and my surroundings until I'm ready to go to sleep. And the trouble with that is that's when, like, if I'm writing, you know, if I'm thinking about a, a, script i wrote or a new idea for a, a script or something like that i that's when the stuff comes to me and it's yeah. like i'm trying to go to sleep <laughs> yeah i do i do uh, to do to do notes then for me it's it morning time is the is the time that i is my best time and also the time i've kind of lost i like hanging out in bed and having coffee with my <laughs> with my partner <laughs> just yeah. like that's that's a sweet way to spend the morning and uh but you know that's the time probably when i'm the freshest the ideas yeah. can come out when writing seems to work okay yeah well everybody has definitely everybody has their their own thing uh i am not a night owl i'm like yeah, a five really owl. okay yeah, yeah i have I, the wrong job <laughs> oh yeah for sure yeah yeah um What's what was the biggest thing you learned uh, when you were in Toad? You know, when in the initial time you were in Toad. Uh, I mean, you, like I you said, you started, you signed the band, you know, uh, to Columbia when you were eighteen. For God's sake, I mean, even for rock and roll, that's uh, that's young. What 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 are yeah. what were the major uh, uh, changes you and the guys probably went through from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety eight? I mean, God you know everything <laughs> it's that's yeah. such a general question like yeah you know i had a career i was uh you know by when i was 27 the band had broken up my dad had just died and i couldn't get a record deal yeah uh and i had two kids at that time and i was uh i had a total depressive breakdown i could understand uh, so there was that I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that was by, a... by 27. Thank yeah. God I wasn't an addict. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The uh, music industry is, 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 a, is not an easy thing to deal with. No, I, I wish I had had uh, more psychological help earlier. I wish I had been more grateful. I wish I had had better financial uh, mentorship. Yeah. And at a time when I was earning, uh, I wish I would have acted more like I would never earn anything again. 
and made some better investments and been a little less risk averse. I also wish that I had sought better help with communication in the band so that we wouldn't have had to break it up uh, and could have could have created some opportunities. I also wish we had toured Europe more and built a career there. It makes me really sad that I don't have a career there. Now, why would, why would that uh, not have happened? Why would that not have happened? Well, uh, why wouldn't why wouldn't Toad go overseas with the management or the label or whatever? Just didn't think it was worth the time. Yeah, it's that's a long story, <laughs> <laughs> but we uh, dropped that ball stupidly. Yeah. Um, have you done much touring in, in Europe though? No, I've gone a couple times where I've just like put up a notice on Facebook and basically like I had a little divorce, uh, post-divorce, uh, solo Europe sadness tour. Yeah. Uh, and, and a good place for it. Yeah. I just put up a thing on, uh, put up a thing on, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Facebook said, yeah, saying Facebook. like, I'm going to be in Europe. I was visiting, my daughter was doing a semester abroad in Rome. Like yeah. I'm going to start in Rome and where was I ending up? I was ending up my friend Casey Turner uh, and his friend uh, Julian. Uh, uh, basically, I ended up going with a couple friends and doing, he put together a sh like a five date uh, Ireland tour. Okay. Um, you know, playing like coffee houses and hostels and stuff, and home concerts in Ireland. Uh, and so I'm like starting in Rome. I am ending in dublin tell me where to go and i'll be there and yeah. so i got to you know play a couple shows in switzerland a uh, little show in italy uh you know it was it was great i had a yeah. wonderful time a show in uh outside of uh you know a couple shows in the netherlands there's a few places i can go and play a house concert but there's no real uh you know solidly built audience you know well whereas, what uh what was what was Toad's uh, reception like uh, overseas in like the UK and that? I I don't really, I I'll, I know some bands like from that era that definitely had you know uh, an impact, but I it, a little bit, you know. There was uh, a little bit of it, but we never built it. Right. So you didn't build. Right. You got to go back over and over and over yeah, when yeah. you're young and don't need to make any money. And uh, you know, we just we didn't do the the work. Yeah, yeah. So you got to do the work. You got to follow it up. Yeah, there. I mean, there was something. I, I don't. I know it sounds vague, but it's like there was something very American sounding about Toad to Wet Sprocket. Uh, I, I think you guys could yeah. work in the UK really, really well. I think. I think that that's a similar kind of vibe for back then. But yeah, I mean, if you don't do it, uh, if if you can't, if you don't have the opportunity to, do, were you just pressured to just go right in after Fear and make a new album? Uh, no, we toured, we did 300 shows. I mean, by the time we were done, we'd been on the tour for 18 months and we played 300 shows. So we needed a little break. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a long story. No, uh, I, I fear we went back some, but we, we didn't keep it up and we didn't, we didn't build it enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was more meaning just, uh, basically here in the States, uh, you, you were touring and, and, and I was just curious about pressure just to get into the next record because fear i mean was such a, a huge success i mean those songs you know were 
or big chart, you know, chart toppers and everything. Yeah, they definitely wanted us back back in the studio and um yeah. How did how did you feel about uh the labels um I guess interest or um dealings with the band as time went on? I mean the the label was great uh you know honestly it was a really good time to be on a major label um we up until the coil album we had like a small licensing fee for bread and circus and pale because we pre-recorded them uh and we made a deal our idea was we were going to get paid on the back end instead of the front end uh so our advances were only for recording costs they weren't for anything else. We didn't get like our rent paid from the record company. Uh, our idea was we were going to earn it and that in return that the company would give us creative control. And so we made the albums we wanted to make, you know, right. and even had like for Dulcinea, our A&R guy was Chuck Plotkin, you know, who produced like oh, yeah. Springsteen and, and Dylan and he you know he would say things like my job is to protect you from the radio guys <laughs> they want to they want a product i want a great album yeah. and you know he would we we played him all the mixes you know early mixes of the songs and i remember he was like wow it's a wild stew you can you can take people on a lot of journeys with this like what's the you got to ask yourself like what's the emotional ride you want to bring people on as they listen to the record like he really believed yeah in- yeah records is art so i, mean, now, I don't I, I have to wonder how many a and r guys like like him are even around anymore oh they all get fired yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's just like because uh, that's just a, it's an antithetical approach for nowadays when everything's quarterly you know meets and all that stuff you know? yes but i think the weird thing about today though is that every successful artist is an outlier and i don't think that was the case back then yeah uh like back then you're i mean there's a degree of that but everybody at the time was signing indie bands right you know it's like okay college bands college music it's the post-punk world they hadn't even coined the alternative genre yet right people were calling it postmodern, post-punk college you know it was all in flux radio was deregulated and uh, i mean very quickly you know they call it indie promotion but they payola found a way back in as quickly as they could make it happen because you know people people like profiting off of other people's hard work uh (laughs) but uh you know it's uh you know you know so i think we came in at a very lucky time where Columbia could afford to be very patient with us. We didn't right. have to have a hit on our first two records. They let us go on the road. They let us learn how to tour and perform. They let us become a better band. Uh, every town we went to with Columbia back in that day, there would be a retail person and a radio person and often also a college rep. Right. They ran us ragged with promo. We would be doing interviews in stores, college radio, commercial radio every day. Uh, and so, you know, there there was this apparatus on the ground of people and the, and the locals were massive music fans, massive music fans. And so, you know, 
it, it, I have to say, we had a great experience. It changed on our last album on Coil uh, because we took a big advance. And when you take a big advance, you have to act like you're there to win. And yeah. we, you know, I, I talked about this in an interview yesterday, but, the, you know, there was this 90s idea where it's like, yeah, we're on a major label, but we're, you know, we're not sellouts, right? Right. You know, Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, like, you know, all these bands that were like, we hate the major labels, even though we're on one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and we all had that attitude. Everybody out of that indie world was, we're on a major, but we're not a sellout. We don't want to play our single. We hate the radio, even though we're going to radio every day and we want them to play our single. You know, people aren't conflicted that way now. Right. Like, if you're putting out music, you want to have a hit. People are right. very clear about that. Yeah. And, and you can try to have a hit really being yourself and being, you know, you can be Billie Eilish, which isn't like anything else out there, right? She right. created a thing. They've signed a ton of other artists that they're trying to make sound like Billy. That's where the, the yeah, quick yeah. A&R cycle comes in is, is the copycats. And that happened right. too in the nineties, but uh, it, you know, it, I don't know. It was a strange, it was a strange time. And I think a unique one where yeah. there was this, there was this kind of pretension to, you wanted to be cool and you wanted to be liked by cool people and real music fans but you didn't want to be in the mainstream right. except that you were <laughs> and then right. you had to pretend you didn't want to be right yeah yeah no, i hear you what was what was the feeling like when uh you know your your first song went got on the radio or you know i mean even further down the road what how successful the songs were it was pretty surreal yeah. I mean, is the best way to explain it. It was it was surreal, you know. Uh, it was really weird when All I Want took off, and uh, even in the audiences, you know, I remember, you know, there were people that the 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 OG fans would be going off. Wow, the All I Wanters, they're yeah. only here for one okay. song, you know. But um, it was kind of a it was an amazing time too. I mean, all of a sudden we were. You know, I, it, it just very surreal. It's hard for me. You know, I see like, you know, videos of us on Letterman and it just, I, it doesn't feel like me. It feels like someone else's <laughs> life. It was a very long time ago. Yeah. And it's a strange thing, you know, to be in a band now that has this tie to people's pasts, right? Yeah. And to, there were times where I really resented it because yeah. I'm still a writer that I, I think I'm more of a writer than anything else. And so being in a nostalgia band yeah. forced to focus on material I wrote in my early twenties, right. I'm thinking like, I'm, I feel like I'm writing the best songs I've ever written. I right. like these songs, but I'm a little bit done with them. And, you know, over time getting past the resentment and realizing that those songs hit people at an important part in their life they mean something to people they're right. worth something to people and just to appreciate them again instead of like running away from them yeah it feels good to have a, a cleaner relationship uh, well yeah because it's a it's amazing like it, you wrote a number of songs that 
impacted people on a massive level. And to have that is, is something truly extraordinary. I mean, people, you know, writers and performers kill, you know, would kill to have something like that. And it just, yeah, I, I could totally see it. it was remembering back at that time, I mean, I'm in my fifties now. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, everybody didn't, everybody wanted success, but nobody, nobody wanted this, you know, everybody wanted to act like they didn't want success. And, you know, the biggest is somebody like Kurt Cobain who did, went out of his way forever to get noticed and then got consumed by actually getting noticed, you know, in, in a lot of yeah. ways. And then acting like he didn't crave it to begin with. And, you know, one of the more complex creatures of, of that era yeah. for sure well um, and, and part of you craves it and there's another part like i'm really glad i had my family early in my life yeah. uh that i you know was with you know my my now ex-wife but we were together since i was 18 i wasn't right. slutting around on the road i <laughs> wasn't rich enough to live you know i stayed in santa barbara i lived uh you know, I, I had kept my old friends. I kept my old, you know, yes. community. I had my checks and balances yeah. instead of going to LA and dating, you know, models and actresses and other musicians and kind of getting lost in the circus. Right. I, I, and I'm nothing, not that there's anything wrong with models and actors and musicians, <laughs> but I, no, there was a, I had a grounded life. That could change things. Yeah. I had a grounded life. Um, I mean, the strange thing, I think, is once again, now, still being an artist, still being somebody who writes and, uh, you know, ponders and ponders and ponders, <laughs> you know, and plays music. It's just you can't you can't compete with the past and you can't compete with that. But it, there's it's a strange thing feeling like you're sometimes at war with the past. Right. Or that the, uh, you know. The, the, the signs of success, the external metrics are um, stacked in a way that kind of doesn't recognize the merits of maybe what you're doing in the now. Uh, and so ignoring those, to, to continue to put out albums while ignoring, uh, you know, the fact of like, nobody's, you know, not nobody's listening, but comparatively, <laughs> you yes, know, I, I get you. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing. And to be like, you know what, my success as a kid was an artifact of uh, partially of the quality of the material, partially of how hard I worked, but more than anything, it was luck and youth and the ability to work that hard and go out and the, the time that it happened right. and that, Right now, you know, my luck is that I can make a living being a musician because of the 90s. Right. Um, I would not be a musician if I didn't have that. And so it's important for me to remember that the reason I get to keep doing this and improving my craft and bringing music to people is because of that time. So yeah. I have to view that with a sense of gratitude because um, it allows me allows me to keep doing it. And, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, in the mainstream anymore. Right. Well, what, what is, um, I just had a question that flew out of my head. Uh, I'll just ask you the, another question. I was thinking of it, then it comes back to me. But uh, what is touring like for you uh, these days on your, on your own? Do you mostly go out by yourself or do you have a, a band with you? 
or how to no i can't afford a band (laughs) (laughs) uh i go out uh Often solo, uh, you know, it depends. A lot of shows are just me. Sometimes I'll bring out uh, my friend Jonathan Kingham and he'll back me up and uh, sometimes open for me. Um, I did do a trio with Jonathan and Amber Rubarth uh, like six or eight years ago. (laughs) Uh, You know, go out with friends like Garrison Starr and she'll sing with me on some songs. And, you know, so it just depends. But, um, you know, uh mostly it's you, know, you and a guitar and and uh, a, a bag of clothes right mostly me and guitar and a bag of clothes so <laughs> uh yeah i love it when i can have somebody out there with me to keep me company and uh take over the driving if my sciatica gets too nasty <laughs> so you're really i mean you don't even have somebody out there like managing or anything it's just you i don't have a manager i have a booking agent as a solo artist that's all i have is a booking yeah. agent okay um right now i'm i I did put out my last record through compass records Mm -hmm. and you know they've been great um but it's not a major label in the 90s you know it's (laughs) it's the modern (laughs) the modern setup so limited resources and i'm a but you know the the good thing nowadays is music yeah the good thing nowadays is the power of you know social media stuff like Bandcamp, uh instagram you know what have you is that you could get you know, at least you could get yourself out there on your own easier than you could. You couldn't do this in the nineties. No, you know, I don't know if that's entirely true. I I think, I mean, there aren't a lot of bands who did the, you know, the regional model, but um, there, there are a number who did, Uh, you know, I think of bands like the samples out of Colorado, you know, okay. Yeah. That's a good, like they made, they did way better as an indie band than they did as a, as a signed band uh, or, or a thing of bands like, you know, it's better, easier if you're a genre band like Fugazi, uh, right. you know, ferociously independent beginning to end, but right. they also had, you know, the punk, if you knew what you were looking for in the world of punk, you would, you know, there's a conversation yeah. among people and those things definitely happen before the internet. Yeah, um, yeah. And so the 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 thing with you know like like any form of media or technology uh social media rewards certain kinds of personality or skill set um and it rewards being good at social media right doesn't reward making great music rewards being good at social media (laughs) and that's its own skill set which i do not possess nor do i want to uh I mean, one of the things in my life right now is trying to figure out, I've built this audience through the live streams that I'm incredibly grateful for and their conversations and their interaction. I'm so grateful for it. I love these people. I love talking to them. I love seeing how they share with each other, but cutting out the noise factor, the fact that I don't have a social media person. So everybody who writes me, you know, I don't have the the, the emotional or time overhead right. to respond in the way that's expected of me at this mm-hmm. point. You know, now that we're not in lockdown, right, right. I kind of can't do it. And so I'm I'm failing at it and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to reorient other people's expectations and my own personal expectations right. so that I'm not overwhelmed and there is a part of that interaction that is a part of the job now and i want to stay 
authentic and present. You know, it's almost related. Like one of the things that built up Toad's fan base is that we would stay around outside the club after the show until every single person who wanted to say hi could. So it would be two hours after the show in front of the bus and we would talk to everybody. And that was one of the things we did to, um, you know, it's how we got our fan base. And we kept doing that pretty much even after we got back together. And I remember I was getting divorced and I started having panic attacks after the shows. Like, because you try to be there and actually be fully present. You've just done all the touring work. You've played the show. You've done everything. And there's two more hours of trying to look people in the eye and actually be there. Right, right. Right. And and not not check out or go to sleep and to actually right. be there. And it, it takes a lot out of you. And I started just having like shake, like I couldn't do it anymore. I, I And... Um, you know, we started doing these VIP things, which felt terrible to me and exclusive at the beginning, but it's like, at the other hand, that's the people who really, really want to see you. And there's the people who are walking out of the club who wouldn't have sought you out, but since you're there, they stay right. And it kind of, it, it it makes it before the show when I'm not so tired, it makes it a little more limited, helps pay for the bus. Now that we don't make money selling records. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, and I don't hang out and talk to people after the shows anymore. And I sleep better, which means my voice is better, which means I play better, all of that. But in yeah. a similar way with the internet, trying to find out like, what is the effort that I want to put into that virtual world and into remembering to post and into, you know, being a good boy on the internet? And what's the energy I want to put into having a life and interacting with people in real time, in real space, in nature, in the world, uh, or teaching people or choir leading or doing the things that fill me up so that I can write better songs because I've been living a life in the real world instead of selling a false image of myself on the internet. And I just, I, as much as social media has become a tool that actually provided i think something very real and concrete in terms of community building with the live streams every time i turn on facebook in order to get to the live stream or figure stuff out i got to filter out the trolley comments i got to look at all the other shit of people going like my perfect life you know here's me from bali like i don't want to see that i want to love my life right here instead of comparing myself to people promoting themselves yeah and even looking at it, even going on Instagram and like, oh God, there's a real, there's an, like, I'm addictive. So I get caught by those things and I'll find myself, all I wanted to do was see if there was a message, if I had to, if I had to respond to, and instead I am caught by this addictive medium and, uh, you know, which I guess I'm responsible for, but I have to go into it in order to use it. But honestly, if I were not a musician, I wouldn't have a single social media app on my phone. I fucking hate it. It's destroyed uh, democracy. It has increased intolerance. It has increased uh, conspiracy theories and irrational thought. 
hatefulness, divisiveness. It, it is the worst fucking thing ever to happen to humanity. That's what I think of social media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, aside from the industrial revolution and capitalism, those are also the worst things to happen to you. But <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I, a certain perspective, I, I can, I can agree with you that, that, yeah, like that for all the good things, all the, you know, getting people together that, you know, in a certain way that, uh, perhaps wouldn't get to know one another uh, or get to know about a culture or what have you, or getting, getting to kind of hang out with your friends, even if you're all over the country or all over the world in a place is kind of cool, you know, but you're right. It, the yeah. problem is, is that the evilness crept in pretty quickly and uh, tends to give a, like an 80, 20 split on the evil side you know unfortunately yeah well and beyond that while there is the good of knowing people in you know widening circles around the world there's also a question of you know uh, what does it take away from our involvement in our local world we can feel that activism is reposting something as opposed to going in the street doing canvassing uh doing community organizing uh you know volunteering in town right yeah. and we can have far-flung neighbors instead of walking out our doors and meeting the people in our neighborhood and becoming yeah. closer to them and and so while there is something about it that is broader and in a certain way much easier right yeah. it, it offers a type of engagement that is ultimately semi-passive it's more like a video game whereas getting to know your neighbors is difficult because they're not exactly like you you have right. to understand how you find your common ground and, you know, forgive is too strong a word and just accept the uncommon ground, the difference and try to right. see the person in there. Uh, you know, it, real life doesn't funnel you into people who are just like you. It doesn't yeah, yeah, funnel yeah. you into agree, 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 and continue to show you things, right, as these algorithms work. They make you right. angry about the other, whoever the other may be. Right. Um, if you get to know your neighbor, you know, uh, it's a very different thing. So I, I, I think even in there, and I'm not saying I'm not, you know, I have this sitting next to me. I'm as susceptible as anyone, but right. there is this cost in being physically, truly, mentally, emotionally engaged locally. Yeah. Uh, it takes our attention away from there. And I think the loss of that, um, you know, there, there are things, you know, the Arab Spring, like that was, you know, created by, it was an amazing thing. Wonderful, beautiful things have happened. Right. Um, but, and I wouldn't trade the community that I was able to build during the live streams. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Right. These people are amazing. I love them. Uh it, but it's a question of now that we're out moving in the world again, what's the balance of online life with in-person life? And right. I find for me, the more I am online, the more I am having FOMO, the more I am not engaged in my immediate surroundings. And that that to me is the biggest loss because that's that's really where life exists. Yeah, I agree. You're alone. Very uh, astute, and uh, yeah, I think I think we, you know we're not getting rid of this anytime soon. No. So we have to be a little bit more 
uh, aware of what it is, what it does, and how it affects yeah. us. Um, the idea that you just um, uh, succumb to it, you know, and just let it just rule you is is you know poor thinking, in my opinion. It's unfortunately, some people just yeah, say, "Well, it, it's here, and I'm just letting it letting it take me." It's like, well. Yeah, and it's a consciously manipulative thing. I mean, I think it's worth recognizing that, like, I was hearing on NPR yesterday, just Apple's new privacy rules for apps apparently have, in the first year, it cost Facebook or Meta something like $10 billion in revenue. That's how much spying on you is worth. Yeah. <laughs> And they're still spying on you. They just can't do it as much as they were. Right. That that's an incredible amount of money, ten billion dollars, just by Apple changing their privacy policies. Yeah. Which is really frightening. Um, you know, it, it, social media should, at, at its best, it should be the public square, and it should reward good conversation instead of being you know once again algorithmically designed to funnel you into like-minded people to see content that will make you as angry as possible so that you can bitch about it to each other that's well, a that's yeah that's why thing yeah that's why on instagram i tend to just i tend to like a lot of animal stuff so i just get i get yeah. a lot of that <laughs> you get nice animals this is good if you like puppies it will give you puppies even, yeah, yeah, even puppies that don't well i like animals. i like a, a truly wide like i just watched a a prairie a video of a prairie dog in a t-shirt or a shirt today so that was very you know happy there you go. I can't argue with that. I used to, you know. I mean, my one of my favorite antidepressant uh, uh, devices was, you know, Cute Overload back in the day. Yeah. Uh, if I was feeling bad, I would go straight to cuteoverload.com and I would just look at fuzzy animals and I yeah. would feel better. Um, I think we, we all need to kind of learn that more. And I, th I think that's the, but the, the problem with that is the problem with modern day society and, and not to Say in my day, you know, because we're at that age where it's in my day, you know, kind of, of thing. But kids these days, you know, we we were a generation that was wanting, kind of. I mean, I'm not saying specifically, but you know, we we were in love with Star Trek and Star Wars, and 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 we we you know we it took all the new stuff we took in you know VCRs and, and video games and cable and it's like you know we were the generation that really kind of were like you know wanting this to you know all to come come to fruition in some ways and now it's just there's a here's whole generation that this is all they know they don't all they know is is uh you know social media and it's at least with us we had we didn't have it as kids you know and i think that that helps kind of you know helps us figure out how to manage it but when you're just born into it i you know and i know we've gone far astray from talking about you and your music that's <laughs> no, fine i i get bored with me and my music <laughs> <laughs> but you know it just you know it it makes me sad that you know uh you know kids or young people don't don't have that time without it i guess yeah, I, I mean, I just worry about cognitive development. Like if you're handing a kid a, a screen at, you know, one or less, and that's yeah. the first thing they're interacting with. Um, 
uh, that scares the shit out of me. Uh, but it's, I, you know, also like, I don't know, my kids grew up, I'm glad they were just old enough that they, you know, missed the iPhone initially. Sure. They're not social media addicts. They're not phone addicts. They're, they're people who really love living in real life. Yeah. I also think as people face, you know, especially girls, all the bullying, the shaming, the crappiness that happens online, a lot of them choose to say goodbye to it and to not yeah. engage. That's uh, good. That's Because it is often so toxic. So, I, I, you know, there's always been somebody turned me on recently to um, uh, this little, you know, quote from Socrates that's basically talking about kids these days. They don't respect their elders. They don't listen to their parents. They terrorize their teachers. Socrates, right? It's always been a story that we did yeah, it yeah. right in my generation and kids these days don't have it. Yeah. You know, but there are, you know, and, and it's hard to say, you know, with technology, it's like, I think there were opportunities for humanity to try to live within its means. And we've been able for the past couple hundred years to kind of you know use the machines of the gods to um allow us to live in imbalance and uh i don't live in balance i consume more than i add it's not sustainable you know it's uh and yeah I, you know it, you know I'm a hypocrite talking about any of it because I, I take place in in this modern consumer society, but I also, I, I don't know how you put it back in the box. And I feel like, you know, my job as an artist is to try to provide a degree of symptomatic relief that can hopefully remind people of how deeply they actually feel yeah. and take them out of the trance of, distraction and uh you know bad othering of a lack of compassion or a lack of heart just a numbness right and um you know i i i understand you know maybe the difference between entertainment and art and i think they can overlap but to some degree entertainment can be something to take you away <laughs> uh whereas art is something that brings you in and entertainment can also be a hybrid, right? You can right. be off in an adventure on another planet and all of a sudden, some, you know, sudden something poignant happens and you find yourself in tears because, yes. you know, there's a great human question happening. Uh, so they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, and sometimes, I mean, for me, I'm a sci-fi buff. I love, you know, reading Alistair Reynolds and Adrian Tchaikovsky. And, uh, you know, I, I love hard sci-fi. Um, but some of the reason I read that is it's not necessarily, you know, sci-fi works in metaphor. And so it still comes back to human relations, to human problems, to basic human issues. And, you know, it's, it's still affecting, it's not just diversion. Um, so I don't know what, what all that means you know once again it's easy to it's easy to cast stones it's easy to complain about how things are yeah um and once again i don't pretend to have any magical cures for anything i don't know if the magical cures exist 
Uh, well, I think I certainly think pe- there are a lot of people that have a lot of really good ideas. Unfortunately, we're in a point in our history, especially here in America, where uh, reason will not will out. Um, and because yeah. everybody's because we have a certain generation of people that are completely terrified of, uh, of anything new and change and yeah. Without without getting into a whole rant, my my parents' generation, maybe your parents, I guess they were about the same age. Your parents' generation, uh, maybe not them specifically, but that generation has become worse than the generation that they protested against. I think in their day, in, in terms of intolerance and and ruin and uh, you know other things. Uh, yeah, but that's a whole the thing. intolerance, the level of intolerance and the the bold facedness of it is is a pretty remarkable thing right now. Um, a kind of I think what I can understand in it is that historically, when things feel unstable, people want certainty. They want certain answers. and they don't want to be told because I know I don't want to be told. Uh, that in order to make things better, that they will have to sacrifice their own personal comfort, which is right. really, you know, what it comes down to. Right. You're going to have to expand your capacity to either be open or give up some of your, you know, creature comforts so that others, you know, right, live simply so that others may simply live. Yeah. Hard for people to do. Well, and then there's the other thing where people, this whole class of people that don't have much of anything or they don't have as much as they probably would like, and then they defend billionaires and billionaires and corporations and and, and to not being, you know, uh, forced to give a little bit more. Yeah, Uh, well, the easiest (laughs) thing to do if you want to, you know, distract right from from the realities is to is to sick people on whoever's just below them on the ladder right whoever they're afraid is coming for what they have instead of asking like why don't we have national health care right why am i one medical problem away from bankruptcy and why is that why is national health care such a, a even a political thing it's a it's a it's a social thing it's social thing it's also an economic thing it 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 makes for more stable economies if you have people who aren't terrified it really does and and it's these questions of you know i mean for me it's things like that it's like why doesn't my wage pay for rent and food (laughs) why do you know why don't my kids have a decent all these questions and and then a refusal to uh have the wealthiest invest back into society it's it's kind of a crazy thing. And then what you do is you point to immigrants who are less likely to commit crimes, work very hard, tend to be very family. Well, you point, you point to like, really, yeah, anybody that isn't uh, just like you, whether it be black people, yeah. Hispanic people, uh, you know, the horrible thing that's been going on uh, with Asian people and Jewish people in this country the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years. Um, yeah. You know, it's like I keep thinking about my grandfather was a tank uh, tank operator in World War II, and he fought to squash Nazism. You know, hate. And, yeah. I mean, my grandfather may not have been 
the the, <laughs> the least the racist guy. person ever, but he knew he was part of a generation that knew what was right and what was wrong in, in many ways, even though certainly there was a lot wrong in those generations too. But yeah, that's it was what complicated. I'm it's always it. been complicated and right. it will always be complicated. It's just and that was things, something I thought we settled, you know, yeah. that we don't appreciate Nazis. These things know? move in waves. And also people look for openings as far as intolerance. I mean, the anti-trans yeah. laws in, in Florida, Georgia, right. I mean, they're, they're hideous and they're memes. These stories of like groomers, what about the children? Like it's, the same stuff that they were saying about gay people before Stonewall and after right. Stonewall. It's the same otherizing stories where there is literally nothing on the books about dangers to children. There's no reality to it whatsoever. It's a boogeyman and it's taking out someone who is different than you that you don't understand. It's yeah. it's unthinkable and don't think they'll stop with trans people. No, I, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a conversation. It, the thing is, is the decision is being made, made before the conversation happens and nobody wants to have the conversation. No, because if you had the conversation about what's actually a threat to children, you would have to look at youth pastors. And if you want to just look up on your own, just do like. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd rather avoid. I mean, I know oh, I have a feeling, but it's not. So, I will it's guarantee not, you there are multiple cases this week. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saying it's, it's, it's not. So, I got. And those are the ones children. that come to light. Yeah. And it's well, anything you, you look back on, you know, the Cub Scouts or any organization that uh, perhaps you and I in, in our time were told to uh, fully embrace their their. They're men of God. Well, he's he's Jim. He's the the, the scout leader, you know, or you know, or uh, John the, the the priest. That you know, whatever. It's um, it's intense, and the cover-ups yeah. around all of that are shocking. I mean, it, but you know, well, this is a very hypocritical nation in many ways. Oh yeah, I mean, God, we've got you know the guys passing this anti-trans, you know, and it's like, oh, and here's a picture of you in a dress, and the other guy is you know, liking a, uh, you know, sending hearts and fire to a, a young. Well, it's like one of the other. Guys, well, there's always the Republicans Republican. passing this legislation. It's like, by the way, your Instagram, your official Instagram yeah. account, you're like sending hot flames and smiles to this like sweet young 20 year old twink yeah, yeah. like you know awesome gay kid kids fine the 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 no, no, anti-gay right, no, like, it's, it's just come on all, man. i mean think about all those republicans that um uh, pushed for and, and passed legislation you know by against gays and were found in a, a bathroom stall with another man it's like well it's, it's always the thing that they either fear the most or that they really don't, they want to overcompensate because they don't want to be known for what they are. It isn't always, but it very often is. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it's a lot. Shockingly often <laughs> where basically if you see somebody screaming on a pulpit about how how gay people are trying to like, trust me, they're, they're hiding something. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, it's just breaking apart families. It's, you know, the danger dividing, in this. Dividing is, friends. Yeah, it's, you know, and I don't know how to, I don't know how you fight those waves. I don't know how you yeah, fight them. Like it's, uh, some of it is just by talking about it, denormalizing it because there's a creep. I think one of the things that, you know, um, 
the right is very good with that the left is is really fails at is uh is the control of language and the choosing of language and like messaging they've been weaponizing words like grooming which basically at this point they're equating with existing like that if you exist you are grooming (laughs) like it's it's a shocking level of intolerance and to see how quickly these these draconian laws are coming in um well the the change that's enacted i mean the striking down of roe versus wade is still something i'm not even sure if i have fully uh accepted happened for some reason it's like i just it was all my life that was that was pretty much one of the first that was like the major law that came up around the time I was born. Yeah. Um, and the, to scale things back, I've never understood the idea of going backwards. But we have a, a whole society of people that don't believe in science, don't believe in, they, they don't trust anything. And the problem is you can sit there and you can go back and understand why people stopped having faith in things. Because people lied, you know, gov- the government lied to a lot yeah. of people about a lot of things and, and it just opened it up and to to bring the conversation back from you know because i can i can do my my liberal complaint list all all day long <laughs> uh, i mean to get back to that that that's where i kind of try to ask better questions and instead of just sitting there and thinking i got it all worked out right. i think there's a legitimacy I think that people have lost their faith in institutions at great cost, at great personal cost. I think people have, their their trust has been injured. Um, what, what I don't quite understand is how casually it seems that that trust is put into places that are telling stories that are even more unbelievable, right? Yeah, that, that, right. Um, it feels like there's, a great personal cost to the loss of trust, but uh, a little bit of a, a, like a casualness in where you put that trust after it's been lost. Well, don't you if think that makes that, sense? It, Meaning no, like if you're, if you're yeah. deciding like, you know, doctors don't know everything, but then you go, so therefore every virologist and immunologist in the world is is lying and they're part of a giant, like that requires right. or, such- well, then why do you go to the doctor conspiratorial? <laughs> yeah, and doctors don't get everything right. They're often wrong. And they are working- and they are working very hard to be less wrong all the time and to right. do that in evidence-based ways, uh, you know, it's uh but that doesn't mean you know somebody over there who's just invented their own brand of energy healing and crystal therapy that doesn't mean that they are right just because doctors are sometimes wrong Mm -hmm. and and it doesn't mean the doctors are trying to hurt you or are lying or in the pocket of pharmaceutical like it's the degree of conspiracy required to think some of these things yeah is is a difficult thing, but I think to not respect um, the pain that people have experienced and how that would cause them to lose their faith or how frightening the world is and that people are seeking answers, people are seeking, you know, definitive answers. It's why fascism 
and intolerance are on the rise when people are feeling insecure. They want somebody who says they know all the answers. Right. And it's sometimes amazing to see where that faith gets deposited. Once again, if you're looking for good, solid answers and you've, you know, uh, it's shocking sometimes who people will believe. <laughs> and, yes. Um, but they respond less to maybe the quality of the research or the answer itself than they do to the self-assuredness. Yes. And the fact that somebody's yes. just willing to say, I know with absolute certainty. And then exactly because here's the weird thing about science uh or policymakers, uh prognosticators of the future in that in that you know wonky way, or even I would say a good spiritual teacher is none of them will tell you definitively this is absolutely the unvarnished truth and always will be except possibly in the spiritual world if you want to go into like my personal irrational belief system is that everything is held together by love i don't want that disproven i'll stick by it i don't think it makes me stupider in other ways but with any of that like what's god god is the unknown you can't know the mind of god god is you know the world of spirit that world so infinite and you know you can't pin it science we don't know shit we're always trying to learn more and science right. seeks to disprove itself science only seeks a proof by testing a hypothesis right. and you know you seek negative proof you seek if you have an idea and i think people some people don't get this about science right you have an idea you try as hard as you can to disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, and if multiple studies can't disprove it, then it right. is thought to be true. But that's how you go about it. You don't you don't uh just decide what you want to be true and only choose the proof that you that backs you up. That's not science. Yeah. Same with good policy. You have to say, we think this will work. And if the situation changes, we're gonna change what we say the right thing is to do. But we're working on the best data we have now. You can't promise a false certainty. And I, I but people don't understand like how, yeah. no, the human mind doesn't like that. And I don't think people are less worthy or bad because of that. I think people are susceptible to bad information, especially when it's accompanied with a story that makes them feel heroic and makes them feel like they have special secret knowledge or um, makes them feel better about who they are. Um, you know, it, I, I understand the susceptibility and I am sure that there are places in my life. This is the thing that terrifies me is I am sure there are places in my life where I'm doing the same thing that I am blind to now that I will have my eyes opened to later, but I have the attitude at the very least that I would like to not be deluded and that I realize it's this thing about, um, you know, there's a lot of psychology on this, that people know that we have confirmation bias, that confirmation bias is this universal human trait. We want to be the hero in the story. We want to be right. We want to have the information that we want to be right, be good. Every single person does this. And also every single person thinks that they are less susceptible to confirmation bias than other people are. Right. So... Right. <laughs> We all know that everybody does it, but we all think we're a little better and right. we're not. <laughs> well, I, I, that's true. I was just about to, you know, I was just in my head, I was thinking, you know, 
I, I, I will say that I do my best to not think that way. Um, but my thing is, I, if I le- legitimately don't know something, I will own up to the fact that I don't, I don't know that for sure. Maybe I can look into yeah. it, you know, but, or you tell, you know, maybe you tell me what you think. Um, I try not to have, you know, a, such a uh, black or white on everything. Um, there are certain things, you know, uh, that have crept back up in the last 10 years that I have pretty definitive opinions on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's in terms of people being hateful or violent and things like that, you know, which shouldn't be a, shouldn't really be a, a real question on, in my yes. opinion. And I have to find, I mean, the hard thing for me in this last period of time has been um, in my response to what I what I view as intolerance or hate speech is what is the tone of my response to that? And so even, you know, the tone of like our earlier conversation, when you're just working on the problem and they're doing this, they're doing that. And there is a fact of that and that intolerance does have to be spoken sharply back to. Um, And at the same time, if you're demonizing those people, you're committing not precisely the same sin, but something adjacent to it. And so how do you answer to injustice and intolerance and also maintain compassion and openness and not meaning holding water for bigots, but understanding that there's some damage to the soul that has made people afraid of the other and not writing them off, you know, Uh, and and that's a hard line to walk. Well, that's especially difficult nowadays when people, you know, are, have gotten to the point where if somebody steps out of line on anything, even if it could be considered minor, uh, there's this immediate backlash. And and, uh, I was saying this yesterday about a uh, silly one of those silly stupid articles that takes something somebody says and extrapolates it into something else that's not and it's put into a headline that's misleading so the whole thing is to you know going back to social media is to get Mm -hmm. all this anger going on social media to click on the link to scroll through it so that ads appear on the sides or in front of you or whatever the hell so that that monetizes the site and in the end the article basically says nothing or contains false information. So it's done all of this, you know, like a bullet going through a body. It's torn up all this stuff uh, simply so you could make a few bucks, you know, kind of thing. And it's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't help anything. And I'm trying as I go on the social media, when I see these sorts of sites, it can even like, I'm a big superhero film fan. So obviously I, I, will click on links and stuff that deal with superheroes and stuff. So, but then I get these sites that they start saying things that are, this isn't even necessarily negative. It's just BS. They just make up their own idea that so-and-so got signed to play so-and-so. And And it's like, well, you're a site I've never heard of before. How is it Hollywood Reporter isn't the one reporting this, you know, like, why would you have this, you know, and it, cause it's BS. They're just, throwing up bs to get people to click on they're selling ads yeah. and it, i mean that's a big part of it it's it's a big ad machine 
and I think we have to realize getting free information on the and the net, you always have to remember that they're selling clicks. Right. <laughs> Pretty much every place is selling right. clicks. So uh, yeah, and if you click through because they have a, a headline that seems incendiary or interesting or exclusive, you're probably, and especially if it's telling you a story you like and want to hear, Right. You're not going to ask if it's true or not. Uh, and there's a lot of sharing of headlines without without reading. Uh, yeah. And I, I no longer, pretty much no longer share any news on social media. And yeah. I have made the mistake once or twice of sharing something that was, that all my emotional reaction went like, right. yeah, that's true. And that I immediately found out after if with a couple more clicks was absolute bullshit. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. No, who I... hasn't at what time? Right. Spread right. Because you're just, you're sitting there passively looking at your damn phone and you're just like, oh, I'm outraged in this moment. Okay. I'll share it and share my outrage and I get it out of my system. But it, it's it, it, the thing that people don't think about. And this has really gotten into some weird psychology stuff here. But they don't think about the fact that you're perpetuating, you know, the the, you know, the the pain and the the sadness and the suffering of of everyone by blindly sharing something and not actually doing anything on your own to see what the truth is. Yeah, at the bare minimum, because you know, reposting even that I don't know if even if it's accurate, I don't know if it always helps. But right, uh, certainly reading an article through before you post it, and then doing a couple of clicks to see if they're acting like there's anything in factual basis to see if that is actually true, right? Yeah. You know, um, well, and also you have to look at and God again, you know, there are certain places where you can for the most part, maybe not get a completely unbiased story, but you'll get as close to it as possible compared to other places where it's like, you know, 75, 25 bias wins <laughs> over Well, I think people facts. admitting admitting bias is a huge thing. Yeah. I think right people on the right, you know, there's a, you know, the whole Jordan Peterson is, I'm a liberal, but I'm only talking in a right wing, you know, in a right wing vortex. Right. Uh, you know, he's not a liberal. He's he's hardcore right, uh, which yeah. is fine. It's just it would be great if he was actually honest about what and who he is. Right. Uh, you know, so there is this. Um, you know, I've had a friend go like Brett Weinstein, like he's you know, I, I listen. I don't just listen to right wing people. I listen to some lefties, too, like Brett Weinstein. It's like, oh, my God, you're <laughs> I'm not even sure who that is. He's he's a long story in uh, <laughs> anti wokeness, uh, yeah. you know, uh, oh whatever they call it, uh, dark horse kind of um, aggrieved, <laughs> aggrieved anti woke people, uh, but it's it's a strange time. I mean, it's yeah, it's knowing what the information is that you're getting, what the bias is, and I think also honestly seeing, trying to vet them for journalistic standards. And, you know, it's a question, uh, you know, do you do fact checking? You know, it, it's harder and harder. You know, journalism is yet another thing that has been um, 
oh, yeah. really hit hard economically by new technologies and it requires fact checking to do real journalism and if things aren't fact checked uh you know uh, you know I, I, for me that's a big thing do people print retractions do they admit right. when they're wrong well there's you know I'll, uh, the 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 urge to crucify people and then when they're found to not be found you know when some like the case turns in some way somebody uh i think about somebody i interviewed a couple of times tom sizemore was accused of inappropriately touching some young girl on a set that he had on his lap and his his main he maintained um not to, he didn't talk he and i didn't talk about this he maintained out outwardly that he didn't intentionally do anything there wasn't anything overt or any you know it if he like say grabbed her by the chest area or something it, it was because he was putting her on his lap or you know whatever the deal was mm -hmm. but you know there, this person ended up getting multiple suits tossed out because there just wasn't anything they didn't present enough of anything to actually get to a, a, a move on date you know and anything and yeah the 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 stating of that even when he passed away there was still that was mentioned in it it's like well you don't have to actually mention that because if it never was proven you know what i mean it's you're kind of like sullying somebody's name for yeah. no apparent reason but there was you know nobody gets as much press um you know kind of you know uh, uh, uh why am i fl flipping on the word here basically proving that they you know saying that they were you know proved innocent or that you know the case was thrown out or whatever then there was the lead up to you know oh this has happened you know this is what's yeah and know. there's a pendulum swing in there that is also you know there is an amount of collateral damage and there's also a readjustment from years and years and years, decades, if not centuries, of boys will be boys and right. getting totally agree. And so it's that it's a it's a hard one. It's a really difficult one because yeah. there is such a history and such a nuance to it. Um and no, yeah. I I don't even mean those of you I'm just talking about like <clears throat> anyone that goes through the process. A vindication was basically the, the word I was getting at. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of juice in the uh, reporting of whatever it may be. There's not as much juice in vindicating someone publicly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, and we're we're quick to we are definitely quick to attack and uh, and the court of public opinion is yeah. is incredibly powerful. But uh, again, with going, what I, I was trying to get at with the, the, the story about the news and, and social media is that it, it's all like a feeding thing, you know, it, it's, um, it just, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, anyways, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We, we're off the ranch now. Yeah, yeah. Bring no, it the, back in and probably the wheels are off and we're, we're basically driving on the axle. Well, and it's, it's uh, you know, I've heard people call it, it's the conversation, which yeah. is how do you make sense of this kind of mess we find ourselves in? And it's uh, that combination of not getting lost in the smaller narratives, the stuff that really annoys you, like, it, and also not shutting your eyes to it. 
Yeah. Uh, it's hard to find that balance. And, you know, uh, that, that question, I just finished this book called 4,000 weeks, which is okay. like this great anti-productivity productivity book. <laughs> um, basically saying that your life is short. You got about 4,000 weeks on average to live. Uh-huh. And, um, you're probably not going to be remembered and you're not going to get everything done. You want to do. You're not even going to get everything you really want to do done. Uh, so you should probably concentrate on the shit you really love that you really feel matters. That feels like it gives your life meaning like yeah. show up for the people you love, show up for the activities that you love, be present as much as you can in the moment, because it could end at any second. You don't have a past. You don't have a future. You have now. You don't have a legacy. Like, let it fucking go. Right. I've been thinking a lot about that. And so there is that thing of like, what do you do in the moment? Which is where it comes back to be present for the people who are right in front of you. (laughs) Try to be loving. Try to model kindness and tolerance. Yeah. You know, the best teachers I've ever had are not the ones who gave the fieriest sermons, but the ones who... um, just kind of showed up as they were and did yeah. the work that was right in front of them and did it with like kindness and vulnerability. Uh, you know, it's not a massively profound thing. It's, uh, and I think we want fiery chariots and the reality is that we, you know, have, you know, pieces of dirt with things growing out of them. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> you know, where, you know, and we want to be once again like part of some amazing life-changing drama and it's really um i don't know i you know it's not so much a cosmic battle as just a a day-to-day you know effort to do something decent um so bringing it back in yeah no (laughs) i I think that's a good point and i i I think it's a good time time to to stop i we've gone way over (laughs) <laughs> what i thought we were going to go so i appreciate you uh indulging i guess this uh this road we we traveled down but oh, uh glenn uh it was a pleasure talking to you your latest solo album is on compass records told the wet sprock is going on tour this summer you're playing uh evanston space uh which is just outside of chicago i don't know if you've ever played there before but it's an awesome oh, theater yeah. Okay. Yeah, you've been. I think. You know. Are we at space, or I thought it was a different. It venue, was space. Actually, it was space. You might Don't be somewhere else, but I remember seeing space. I think space is promoting it, but I don't think it's actually. Oh. All right. Hold there. on. Hold on. Instant fact check. Wait a minute. Dead air. It's at the. Uh, is that at Con Auditorium? What is it? I've never heard of that here outside of Chicago. Well, hold on. I'm on. I'm on the site. Right, yeah, Con Auditorium. Oh, here we C-A-H-N. go. C A H N, not like Con. Uh, yeah. What date? Uh, June twenty eighth. So there you go. Oh, you're right. I've never heard of yeah. that place. Well, there you go. It's on Sheridan and Emerson, yeah. right next to the Delta Gamma sorority in Scott Hall. Uh, oh, you got that figured out pretty quick. All right. Uh, so there you go. The Khan, not a uh, Wrath of Khan or James Khan. Uh, the Khan Auditorium, Evanston, June 28th. They're 
going to be Wait, somewhere else near you. Do you know so. a James Khan? I'm curious. Who is Jimmy Khan, the actor? Oh, yeah, it's not the one I was thinking of. I know a James Khan in Santa Barbara who I met. <laughs> who's? I just have to do this. If you're a nerd, you will really appreciate. Okay, this. go ahead. Um, I I met him kind of through singing circles. He's this great guy. He's a doctor. Um, he's like a retired physician, but he uh, also he he just made an album of like environmentally based sea shanties. Uh, he he's a he's a really fun songwriter um so he's a songwriter doctor also screenwriter and novelist but also like back in the day wrote among other things the novel is it he did a lot of uh film novelizations okay uh including uh 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 god why am i remembering a new hope uh <laughs> what was what was the third one uh return of the jedi okay i was like what i wasn't he sure wrote you the were book version of return of the jedi i read that oh the not like the book version the novelized version yeah yeah yeah. okay cool oh wow also by james con but a i different might have james actually Con. i gotta be honest i might have owned that because i bought anything star wars back in the day oh yeah i think he, he and he did some spielberg too i think he might have done poltergeist or something but like it was this bizarre thing, like meeting him and then looking at his bookshelf and just going like, why do you have the novelization of like <laughs> Return of the Jedi? And it's like, oh my God, you wrote that? Anyway, yeah. He's a well, cool you know, it, 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 God, those novelizations were cool because sometimes you'd come across one and there'd be a bunch of stuff that wasn't in the movie. And you're like, oh, they must have they must have been basing this off the original script then. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the weird one. It's like, did they... Yeah, are those the scenes that got cut out? Yeah, he did yeah. Poltergeist, Poltergeist 2, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune, Goonies, and Return of the Jedi. Wow. Pretty cool. That is pretty cool. <laughs> All right, well, shout out to James Conn, the uh, multi-hyphenate out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, Conn Auditorium, Evanston, June 28th, Toad to Wet Sprocket will be on tour all summer long. So go check them out and be sure to keep an eye out for Glenn performing solo. Again, awesome. thank you very much for your time today. Glenn. Yeah, thank I you. Appreciate I'll it. see you later. All right, Thanks. bye.